Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 400 CTOs who share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insights into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, please visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. This episode is kindly supported by Fastly, the biggest challenger in the CDN market. Fastly is pushing ahead the technical boundaries and is, from my perspective, the best solution on the market. Fastly is known as one of the key drivers of the Edge Cloud movement. Well-known customers of Fastly are Shopify, The New York Times, Reddit, GitHub, and many, many more. If you want to try it all with first-class support, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. If you are listening to my podcast and especially this episode, you will most likely work with Git in your team. The question is if you make the most out of it. If you find yourself or your team members fiddling around with clumsy commands that are hard to remember, you don't. Imagine you could undo mistakes in Git with a simple keyboard shortcut command Z, deal with GitHub pull requests, use interactive rebase via drag and drop, or create repos with a single click. Tower lets you do exactly that and so much more. You and your team can take advantage of Git's powerful feature set and a beautiful interface that will make you more productive every single day. Try Tower today with the free trial at gittower.com and use the promo code CTO for a 50% discount. Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I'm your host, Toby, and I'm very excited to welcome Jason Warner, the CTO of the world's biggest developer platform, GitHub Today. Besides being the CTO of GitHub, he carries a little secret. He wrote a lot of fitness books in the past, and maybe that's a good starter, Jason. Maybe you can, you can tell us how you came from fitness books to being the CTO of GitHub <laughs> Uh, well, I wouldn't say there's a direct path from writing fitness books to the CTO of GitHub, but I would say that there was a little bit of a diversion in my history where, uh, you know, some hobbies bled over into real life too. So um, a couple of years ago, um, actually at this point, about 10 years ago, a friend and I got really into a set of fitness things and he got contacted by a publisher who wanted to write a book. So he wrote a book and at the time um, I had gone really nerd deep on fitness, like really nerd deep learning all about the ins and outs of all the various things about fitness. And over the course of a couple of years, you know, he wrote a couple of books and I just got, became a certified personal trainer so that I could create the programs for him in these. And then eventually I got my own series of books with him as co-author um, and um, kind of went from there. Just did them on nights and weekends for a couple of years to have some fun with it, to figure out how to write a book and see what the publishing industry looked like. Um, in retrospect, I might've done them under a pseudonym. I don't think when you're looking for Jason Warner on the internet, you need to find those books as maybe the third link at this point, but, um, it is what it is. Uh, and funny story, a little quick diversion. I think you would enjoy this. Um, the first people to figure this out, um, I wrote the books when I was at Canonical and no one knew about them there. But then when I was at Heroku, Heroku had an awesome basement in the San Francisco office, uh, was office gym in the basement at the San Francisco office. And over the course of a couple of months, as I was uh, 
getting on board there, I worked out with a bunch of people. One of them somehow figured out and found these books. And then one day when I came into the gym, there's literally dozens of these books just scattered around the gym, all the way up into the office, first floor, second floor, third so floor, just finding that, that, random. That guy places. didn't like you or? <laughs> oh, we're still friends, actually. He just really wanted me to know that he figured out one of my secrets. So it was uh, it was rather amusing um, because I turn red when I get embarrassed. My face gets flushed and I kind of uh, I have no poker face for embarrassment. And wow, did I get red right there. So a very, very interesting fact and um, quite rare um, uh, that uh, I think CDO of uh, the biggest developer community in the world also has written a few fitness books. So why why didn't you come up with a fitness app then? Um, I just wasn't that interested in going deep into that anymore. Um, one of the things I found with fitness in general was what I was really after was uh, meta-understanding. Um, I wanted it for myself more than anything. I, I played basketball a lot a long time ago, and um, I, that's when I really got into fitness. Um, and then what I really wanted to do with it was less about the creation of programs for other people and more about an understanding of what it takes to be fit for life. And it was literally just personal at that point. After, after writing the books, it was more about learning about book writing and publishing. The fitness side of it was completely personal. Okay. And are you still into fitness or did that also? I, I have spent a ridiculous amount of money on a home gym. Um, I'm very into fitness. And I'm, at this point, I'm, I'm on the wrong side of 40 or the right side of 40 from a privileged perspective, if you understand what I mean by that. And I am all about dying slowly and gracefully. And that's the way I look at fitness at this point is I want to make sure that um, I stay healthy and strong um, for a long time. I'm no longer going to stand up on stage and try to show a thing or lift a thing. I just want to be healthy for as long as possible. And, um, you know, as great, you know, age as gracefully as possible. And, and how did you get into computing? I mean, you, you mentioned that you, you, you've been working at Canonical, the, the company behind Ubuntu, for example. Um, how, how did you get into that? How did you get into programming? I, I, I took a weird nerd path, I think, to computing. Um, I think most people, say it was a first love or they got a computer when they were really young. That wasn't me at all. I didn't grow up in a way that allowed that to be. It just wasn't in the cards for us. We, um, my grandparents were farmers. My parents were farming and eventually escaped it. But my father was a construction worker. And my mother was a typing teacher. And my mother wanted me and my, my brother and sister to be the first kids in our family on that side, of, uh, in our family to go to college and on that side of the family to graduate. And, um, Uh, what happened was through a series of weird events, we ended up in this town in Connecticut and I was an auto shop of all places. And the auto shop teacher said, I think you should apply for this IBM high school co-op in um, co-op that they have. And the reason why is because you seem like a smart kid and you seem like you could use a break. And if you get it, you know, there's likely that you can escape farming or construction or something like that. That's was probably going to be where I went if I didn't end up going to college or something. Everyone in my family is a construction worker I'm on that side of the family. And on the other side, they're, they're police officers or something else like that. So um, I applied and um, we happened to be living in a really rich town at the time. And I was the only kid that applied that didn't have both a car and a computer, they're like their own personal car and a computer. So they gave it to me because in reality, what it was is just carrying printers and computers around IBM. 
at the time. And they said, Hey, this whole point, the whole point of this program is to give kids a chance that need it. And it's that kid's driving the one year old used BMW to the interview does not need that chance. So literally took it. They told me if you get a computer science degree from college, we'll guarantee you a job. And at the time, all I thought was air conditioned office job. That sounds great. I don't have to dig ditches in the summer with my father, my uncle, and my cousin. So I can't say that I was destined to do this. I just say I kind of fell into it. Now, it turns out that I had, um, I was very good at physics in high school and a certain set of math in high school. And then when I got to college, I realized that I was really good at um, a very specific type of thinking, which I will call systems thinking. And it just applied to computers. So, you know, I, I would say I was an average developer, but an excellent architect and systems designer. And it just kind of translated to the industry. And the unlock for me was eventually when I um, started working on the distri distributed systems. You could, you know, I was one of those people that could hold the entire system in my head. So it just felt like a superpower to have that. It's like a crazy discovery, right? I mean, if you are in a relatively normal family or like farmer family and then suddenly discover your, your, your secret superpower that you, you didn't know that it was there, right? Or how did that feel? I It, I mean, it took a little while to feel like I still wasn't um, going to get booted out of it for what it's worth. It's kind of a weird thing, but it felt good to, to, to figure out that you're really good at something. Um, I think everyone has that moment when you start to achieve something and you're like, oh, wow, I'm actually really good at this. And, and um, you know, one of the one of the key things that I did really early on, this was in the mid 90s when I was in college, which was um, I knew I was coming to the game late. Everyone who I was in computer the computer science, computer engineering um, electrical engineering program at the time with had been using computers since they were like five, six, seven, or eight. And I literally bought my first computer that, you know, as I was going to school that at 18 or 19 or whatever it was. Um, but the one thing I did, which I think was a massive unlock was I focused on something that no one else had an advantage on, which was the internet, because it was so brand new that no one else could possibly have a leg up on me. We're all learning the concepts or the, the patterns and everything at the same time. And that was a very good decision because it put us all on equal footing right away. Yes, they had some background, but none of us knew what was happening. So we can all focus on the thing at the same time. But then you jumped onto Linux, right? With, with the Canonical? So I, I've been an early Linux user. I've been using Linux since like 96, 95, 96, back when um, it was it first came out, right, right around the Minix times and all those sorts like of things. Like Debian 1.2 or something, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, I was using things that you should never have actually installed on, a, on your own personal <laughs> machine because I had to reformat that and adjust it more times than not. And I missed some school assignments because things were broken. Um, <laughs> and um, the reason why I did that, though, is, you know, I'm, I'm using a third-hand computer at school, um, I just couldn't afford software. Windows 95 had come out and literally, you know, even a, whatever it was, like 50 bucks was too much for me. So I was just looking for whatever was free at the time. And um, because Unix was on the mainframes at school, I, got, I, you know, understood what Linux was. I said, hey, this is compatible enough. Let me figure this out. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's really like a crazy career in a way, right? And then, then you you jumped over to Heroku, right? Um, and then you ended up as ended up as CTO of GitHub. That's that's yeah. My, I think like my past 12 years or so, basically canonical. Um, people make Ubuntu Linux. Their main audience is developers. That led me to Heroku, which was a still developer audience platform as a service. Um, and then yes, yep, GitHub. 
And, um, you know, I think that in some ways they look like a graduated curve. It's kind of like, yeah, all right, we'll figure out you're working with developers and you're working on an open source thing. Now you're serving them and, and helping them run their apps. And now you're basically the the center of the developer universe with GitHub. And so in some ways it feels like a natural graduation. Um, but, uh, you know, more than anything, it was just in some ways just pure happenstance luck. Um, and in other ways, it was a little bit calculated, too. It, it smells as if you're a bit into Ruby, right? Um, I mean, Heroku was kind of Ruby heavy and at GitHub, as far as I know, it, it's also written partly in Ruby, right? It is. Um, so I, I started out life as a, you know, as when I was developing in college and the first distributed systems were all C. Um, Java then became an enterprise language that I used in the early 2000s. And I tell you, um, I hated Java, I hated I hated Java. At the time, it was J2EE and EJB 2.0, and that left scars that still have not healed. Uh, but at the time, I started to find Python and Ruby at the, uh, was also starting to make waves. And then that Rails beta came out, I think it was like 2005, maybe. That Rails beta came out um, with the, the blog post video and all that. And I dove deep into Rails because I wanted, and the concepts kind of blew my mind at the time. And it really helped me unlock like, hey, there's a better way to do this. Um, there's, there's an interesting way. And that stuck. I mean, I've been using Python and Ruby um, on and off for the last 15, 16 years. Um, but yes, uh, I'm deep into the Ruby Rails ecosystem and Python and, or sorry, with Python as well, but also with that Heroku is all Rails and Ruby. And then GitHub is all Rails and Ruby. And obviously both of them have other languages at play as well. Yeah, I think I remember that time. It was really crazy when you 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 had that that feeling that it's kind of a revolution going on there, right? With DHH announcing um, everything in videos, and there was that nice website for 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 web framework. Uh, it was totally unusual, right? Uh, I I literally I I literally tweeted this yesterday, um, and I don't know when people will hear this, but um, you know March eighth, I tweeted this. I said that I I don't think it's a hot take, but I think. Rails and Heroku are had advanced web tech more than anything else in the industry in the last 20 years. Um, I think Rails, from a conceptual standpoint, influenced more languages and frameworks than anything in you know my 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 lifetime that I've seen. And Heroku, the same from a DX operations app perspective, 12 factor, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it was a. I mean, it was really weird when you saw that. You really thought you were, if you were deep into the ecosystem at the time, you really thought you were seeing the future. Yeah, in a way. That's true. That's true, and uh, it's it's still not really over, right? I mean, it still feels um, kind of kind of good uh, riding riding rails. It's, it still is. It got a bit boring because um, like the ecosystem cooled down a bit. But um, if you look at other languages, I don't know what you use these days, or if you still code. Um, if I do, and if I actually had to reach for something myself to build my own company, I'd still reach for Rails these days. Um, people would say that it would be a mistake for various reasons. And I would, I tell them, no, my approach is that it's not the tech that's the most important bit when you're building a business, it's other things. So you want the tech to be boring so you can go faster in other ways. So I would literally pick Rails, Heroku, and GitHub, and I would not choose anything else until I hit such massive success from a product perspective that I was forced to do something different. Yeah. Um, would you, would you use single page web apps or anything or? Depends on the use case, but I would probably keep everything in Rails and figure out what the front end of it could look like, whether or not I could use some of the new tools that they're doing with the turbo links or any of those sorts of things, or if I had to put something else on front on, on top of it. Um, I'm not a big fan of React, personally. I just don't like the, the programming model. I think it's way too heavy. 
um, as well. So if I was going to do something like an SPA, I'd probably try to find a lightweight version of that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, even Vue is still kind of similar to React, right? So it, it is. Vue probably Vue next would probably be where I'd start looking um, uh, to start, but I don't have uh, a, a lot of experience in that area. But I would probably, honestly, I'd probably still just start using jQuery just, <laughs> just because it gets the job done. And I know that sounds weird. I mean, CTO GitHub, I'm like, no, no, you should be using the most advanced things in the world. I'm like, no, no, no. I, there, I think there's two types of developers in the world, typically speaking. There's the type of developer that wants, that sees that stack trace and says, yes, let's go. And there's a the type of developer that sees that stack trace and says, I need to figure this out so I can get back to writing my app. <laughs> I'm one of those that says, I need to get back to writing my app. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. So, um, but coming coming from, from Ruby on Rails to GitHub. So um, I think GitHub was sold for, I don't know, around 8, mil, 8 billion, not million, 8 billion to Microsoft. And um, you as like being a, a Linux fan, From the early days, you maybe also remember that there were anti-Linux ads <laughs> in yeah. Linux magazine back then in the 90s. Um, how did this evolve? I mean, how does it how does it feel to to work for the what 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 back then was essentially called the devil in a way? <laughs> I, I joke about this quite a bit because um, I'm I was one of those kids in the 90s that would have wrote M dollar sign, just you know, like everyone else at the time might have. And um, I had an exceedingly low opinion of Microsoft for a long, long time. Um, how does Microsoft evolve itself to the point where they become the stewards of open source? So that's essentially what they bought with GitHub is um, the world's largest open source platform as well. Open source developer community platform and then software development platform. Um, I mean, I, I think that they won have to earn that right by showing some work over a decade where they were working in open source more. I think too, they have to, at one point, I do think that they, um, I forget when, but Satya said he was sorry, essentially. I don't think he said, I'm sorry, but effectively like Microsoft's wrong about open source and um, kind of walked away from it. Um, some of the past statements, which I think needed to be done and still people are going to hold grudges against it. Because if you think about what Microsoft looks like today versus what it's, public strategies were in the early 2000s, you would have looked at Microsoft. Microsoft was effectively an alien race come to seek out and destroy every other software company on the planet. That's what it looked like. Now it's supposed to be about ecosystem and building together. And it, it, how, how do you reconcile those two? Hmm. And I think that's what you know Satya has been trying to do over the last, what, seven years since he's been in charge. Um, but if you ask my 19-year-old self if I'd be working for Microsoft, oh, hell no. Um, but then again, I never thought I worked for a company with sales in the name either with Salesforce. Yeah, right. You worked for Salesforce before, so you already got, got used to that. <laughs> but no, no, just joking. I mean, it's, it's brilliant what, what he made out of it. Right. And it's, it's, is it purely a CEO thing? Um, no, I mean, so I have a, I've, I've management philosophies in life and I do think that this, the CEO inf influences the organization much more than, um, Uh, any other person, any other singular entity. So um, I, it's it's no secret that I'm not a fan of Steve Ballmer's. I think that Steve Ballmer was one of the worst CEOs in the history of um, mega company um, operations. I just think that he, from a strategy perspective, made classically silly mistakes, compounded them, and then dug in using hubris and other things. It just, I don't need to go into it, but I'm just not a big fan of his. So I think... He impacted the organization in a way from a strategy and operations and all that perspective. And Satya is basically a 180 from him. Mm 
And so I do think that that, that matters. Now, I don't, I don't think that it's a complete DNA shed when you just change one person at the top and none of those and all those things take time. But I do think that, I do think that Satya as a singular entity uh, has an undue influence and can make that work. Now it takes also removing some other people as well, or changing them out or having them understand that they buy in to a new way of working as well, or, or new philosophy. Um, so it's not just one person, but it takes that one person to get to the other ones on board too. Yeah. It's a, it's a crazy shift. Um, and um, I can also imagine or from, from the, from a bit further away, it also looks as if the, the whole post merger integration of, of GitHub also is working just seamlessly, right? That there's no, it feels as if you work perfectly together and uh, as if there, there are no, 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 no bump holes. Is that, is that true? I mean, the easiest way to describe what is happening with us is that I say that um, this is not a, uh, a negative statement on Microsoft. I think Microsoft operates itself at the moment like a PE holding company. It effectively buys entities unless they're run independent. You know, look at LinkedIn, you look at Minecraft, you look at um, all those other ones are effectively run like independent um, companies that report up to Microsoft. And what, how it actually runs um, is that uh, all of us on the exec staff of GitHub report to Nat Friedman, who reports to um, Scott Guthrie over at Microsoft. Now, we do have other entities inside um, of GitHub that report up to other entities at Microsoft. That's HR and finance, typically, um, that report up to other entities. So we effectively have a GM model where Nat runs GitHub as a GM. Um, but where why that works is because we have we have certain governance, but we don't have others. So we basically we they say, hey, you hit your revenue numbers, you build wherever you want to go do that. So that's that's the secret, I think, to making this work, because the way that GitHub acquisition goes wrong is that someone who doesn't understand what made GitHub popular and successful in the first place buys it and tries to change it. And let's be honest, if Microsoft, Google or any of the other entities that were trying to buy GitHub could have built GitHub, they would have built GitHub. They tried multiple times to do it and they couldn't. And all of those products were not that successful. And I think that even when we're having those conversations, no one fully understood why it was. So that if they tried to shoehorn an acquisition that looks like us into their way of thinking, it likely would go bad. But if they say, hey, we don't know this, let's not have that sort of arrogance that we know better than you on what the product and the customers want. We'll let you run all that sort of stuff. Let us help you by accelerating other areas. That's how those things can go right. Okay. And, but, but still, if you, if you, if you look at all the stuff that Microsoft did there with VS code and, and GitHub actions, which is, which could feed into, into Azure, um, it still seems to be like a, like a really bold strategy, right? Uh, to develop. Well, to be clear, all those things were being done before we got acquired. Yeah. So we were already experimenting with an editor before we got acquired. We were just weren't using VS code. We were, GitHub Actions was built before we got acquired. So was packages. So was the, uh, a bunch of the security work. So in fact, yes, like those things, we're still doing those things because GitHub was doing those things. Now, yes, the strategy could be from Microsoft's side, there could be some sort of evil nefarious strategy, which is like, hey, let's put a deploy to Azure button on GitHub. But that would be the one thing that um, would break this. And we've been exceedingly clear 
with Microsoft or Google or any of the other entities that were trying to acquire us. But when we got inside Microsoft, we said the same thing. Like there will never be a deploy to Azure button that appears on GitHub. It's the one thing that would destroy the trust with the developers. Um, if you want to build something that looks like this, Azure has to earn the right to get their attention. We will build the world's largest software development platform. We will point it at all the public clouds. And if Azure is the best one, developers will choose it. And let's, let's work that through. So That's a math problem. Let's figure that out. So let's deploy to AWS and let's deploy to G Cloud and DigitalOcean and everyone else yep. at the same time. Okay. Yeah, I think that um, also pretty much uh, aligns with the, the, the partner first strategy that you seem to have before you actually build GitHub Actions, right? What, what, what was the idea behind going into CICD then? So there's a couple of different things that we were doing. One is we had um, GitHub Actions is, um, well, we, we had a multi-year plan. So we were going to do a partner first approach. We called it internally called GitHub Launch. Then we were going to build what you'd see today as GitHub Actions, but it was going to be workflows first, add CI second. Then we were going to do something else, which we haven't done yet. Then we're going to do two, another thing, and then another thing. And GitHub Actions will eventually evolve over the next three to five years and to be something um, both wide and deep. So the approach that we were, the, the very simple approach to what we were going to do with this was um, just to be honest, since we were, we were independent, we had a couple of things at play. One, we had to stake our claim in the market. And I don't, I don't, I never considered a certain couple of entities in the market to be our competitors. Um, everyone would compare us to GitLab or um, Atlassian. Those are not, as far as I'm concerned, those aren't our competitors. The only competitor we had was AWS. And I said that we need to stake our claim right at the moment of deploy. And so we needed to jump from where GitHub was as a code collaboration website, essentially to stake claim at the moment of deploy to say to the market and, and to Amazon, this is where the fight will happen if we have a market fight. Because if we didn't, Amazon would continue to encroach on our areas, the other areas. Anything between GitHub and AWS was essentially unfederated territory. Yes, there were CICD platforms out there or, or sites, there were packaged registries like NPM and others, but none of them were massive companies and none of them um, had the entire market. So I needed to say between Amazon and us that we're going to stake a claim right here and this is where we're going to have that fight. That was a very strategic decision. And why we didn't build CI first, there's there's two. One, it it wasn't as strategic for us. We had to move over to tell Amazon what we wanted to do. And two, the cost of it was incredibly high. CI/CD is not a great business to be in from a COGS perspective. Um, but inside of Microsoft, we can we can make that work much better. As an independent entity, we would have just been blown through money. Next step could be to also build the Netlify, to also build the DigitalOcean and um, so on and so on. Yep, good. Okay. I mean, you already have static hosting, by the way. <laughs> But, we do. Um, uh, and, I, and everyone just assumes that I'm going to build a Heroku because of my past and combine it together. Well, um, I, and I think that at some point we'll have something that looks a lot like um, a, a modern version of Netlify, um, Heroku, uh, DigitalOcean, all those things. But it won't look like the versions of them today. Because that's that's the point. Like we're not going to build something that exists already. We're going to build something that comes next. So in fact, um, I think that we what we'll build is we will build a platform at some point on the on the production side of the fence for people to host and and run apps and code. But it won't look a lot like you know traditional platform as a service um, or any of those things that kind of exist today. It'll look a little bit different and it'll operate a little bit differently. 
And it's because we're not trying to build again. We're not trying to build what is today. We're trying to build what developers will need in the future. One of the, the, the one of the key things that I think about on a regular basis is that there's only a couple of entities in the world. Um, if you're familiar with dinosaurs, dinosaurs effectively are bucketed into these things called three apocal phases of multi-hundred million year arcs. Well, there's only a couple of entities in the world. If you think about those three multi-year, um, hundred million year arcs as software development phases, if GitHub or Microsoft or Amazon or, or Google introduces a groundbreaking new, new piece of software, it can actually advance all the software at once. I don't think of iterating software. I think of advancing the entire craft for every developer in the world at once. So, you know, we could build a Netlify competitor or we could build static hosting again, do it again. But that's that's derivative, diminutive thinking. We're going to build something that takes all of the developers from the Crustaceous to the Triassic to the Jurassic. And that's how I look at those things. Okay. So it will be simpler, I hope. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, it definitely can't be more complex. Well, I guess it could be more complex. We could start orchestrating Kubernetes with Kubernetes or something like that. But yes, it would definitely have to be simpler. Um, I mean, if you look at my background too, um, that's what we do. Anything that's, you know, or what I do in the past and all the people that we brought in, you know, five commands need to become three, three commands need to become two, um, you know, four button clicks need to become two button clicks. One button click needs to become no button clicks. That's, that's the whole point of what GitHub and Heroku have been for the last, you know, decade and a half. And and I think there's there's pretty much room for a, a revolution from from that perspective, right? If you look at if you look at Heroku, then it's it, it kind of grew old, right? And and still uh, companies are are trying to copy it, right? I mean, DigitalOcean came up with the app platform, and there are, there are others that that are trying to build platforms. Then there's Netlify trying to make it a little bit easier, um, and just going like ten steps forward. Um, It could really make sense, yeah. <laughs> well, interesting. Um, I, I've said this a couple of times, and I think it's it's quite interesting to me to compare them. But I, I do think Heroku, um, Heroku is one of the more interesting tech companies of the past uh, 10, 15 years in that it was so far out ahead of where the thinking was that people are still trying to copy it, of what to copy what it was or maybe what it is. But also, because it sold so early, we never got to finish it. There was a lot more that we were going to do. Heroku was never supposed to become, or at least when I was there, it was never supposed to stop, finish and stop at Platform as a Service. It was actually supposed to go all the way. It was, if you think about it from a, uh, a visual perspective, if you have Heroku all the way at the top, as a platform as a service, and then you have IaaS and, and bare metal and all that sort of stuff at the bottom, most people will put platform as a service directly above IaaS. That is not true. That is not at all what the experience is supposed to be. Heroku as a platform as a service is five, six, seven layers above IaaS. There are many different things that come in there. It, it, and if you understand like that layer, it think of it as a TCP IP stack. If you could build those out, Heroku could have been the graduated curve of complexity all the way from simple PaaS all the way down to um, IaaS. And that would have meant that Heroku, no one graduates off of Heroku. You use Heroku to orchestrate everything in your software development life. And you just happen to run your apps on Heroku to start in some days and some days you don't. You orchestrate, you send your CloudFormation config out and you don't care, but you get all the signal back. Um, it's 
we could have done a lot, but we never were able to, compl- to finish it. And do I think that, you know, GitHub has a chance to go do that? Yes, I do. And we're taking some of the same thinking. We're, we're bringing it over to, to GitHub. Um, GitHub Actions is that personified to a degree, but just in a different market position. Um, but will we actually finish it there too? Who knows? Life gets in the way sometimes. Thanks a lot to our sponsor, The About You Cloud. The About You Cloud offers a full-stack e-commerce solution as a service that runs on exactly the same infrastructure as The About You Shop does. It is mobile-first, can act as headless system, event-driven, can be fully localized and is super integrated into existing solutions. Besides that, it is designed and developed by a really smart CTO and friend of mine, Sebastian Betts. About You has set up a task force for retailers and brands that want to be quick in the COVID situation. This task force will help you with the launch of your shop as well as with fulfillment, marketing, support and internationalization. Simply write to hello at aboutyou.com to be supported by this task force. I think it could be as simple as uh, having a preview per pull request, having a preview uh, per action run, uh, being able to, to to see everything and trace everything for your for your actions. I, I, I would be a fan of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean that 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 is a very obvious next step for us to say, like, yeah. okay, so how do we take? Think about it this way: at some point, GitHub will know. Um, more about your application than anything else in the world. We know, we'll know your we'll know your test data, we'll know your CI CD runs, we'll know your um, workflow config. We'll likely have some keys for your production um, data. What could we do automatically for you? Well, we can we could automatically set up these environments based on pull requests. We could automatically run A/B tests. We can automatically even do traffic pattern rollouts for you. Well, at that point, what what do we know stuff about what's happening in production for you? You're having error crashes, you're having sentry log um, crashes and log files happening. What could we do then? Well, we we know what line crashed in production, we know which PR caused it. How do we connect those dots and create something different for you at that point? There's there's a lot of stuff that GitHub and oh, and really no one else could do for you. Now tie this to the open source side of the world. We happen to know all the open source, you know, what is it? I think it's like 97% of all open source in the world now exists on GitHub. Well, we, we know what vulnerabilities are happening. We know all of those sorts of things. There's, there's certain elements that we can bring to projects and software that no one else at the moment can do. And in that way, we have a responsibility to do those things. Again, we could bring software through each of those apocryphal phases. Um, we just have to tie all those dots together. Yeah, but it it sounds it sounds logic that uh, you can really chase down everything to every single line and every single change and every single commit um, in in the source code. I mean, even um, I think on on issue tracking, I'm, I'm I'm a fan of really using your your simple issue tracking these days because it really ties to your code, right? It, it's it's a huge advantage from my perspective. And if you if you spin that further to, to your production workloads, then yeah, I, I think it, it can be an amazing product. Yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways in which we could have fun with it. Um, a lot of different ways in which we can instrument certain things to also make certain things automatic. Um, and some of them are going to look maybe simple and some of them will, will, look, will look like magic. But we won't know which until we build them and, and have developers have in the developers hands okay um so you, you mentioned that um like almost all open source projects are in, on, on github these days um i think a few years ago microsoft committed to also fully migrating to to github is that is that true yeah microsoft wants to run internally on github 
wants to run or does run? <laughs> uh, I would say wants. I mean, Microsoft has some of the largest code bases in the world. I mean, I think the only only um, corporate entity that might have a larger one, and that it's theoretical, I don't know this to be true, might be Google. Um, but uh, there's some limits to Git that we've been working on for years that cause um, some issues with uh, the size of some of the Microsoft repos. Um, so I'll, I would say, a, a, I wouldn't say the majority, I haven't actually done the, the math on this, but a lot of people inside of Microsoft already run exclusively on GitHub. Um, and the ones that don't want to, and some of them have moved other projects over, but you know, there's one or two that we know that we couldn't even handle at the moment. Okay, okay. So, uh, but but the goal is that Microsoft is your biggest enterprise customer then, or? I mean, everyone, I want every developer in the world to run on GitHub. I want them to have that um, from, a, from a developer perspective. Um, Nat used a, a different metric, which was lines of code flying, uh, flowing through GitHub. If every line of code in the world flowed through GitHub, that's our goal. Um, so Microsoft and Google and everyone, yeah, I want them all. I want them all to run in GitHub. And I don't think about it from a corporate perspective. But we got we salespeople to go think about that. I think about that from the developer perspective. Um, I want the, I want those developers to have this. I, ha I have this, this cheeky profile of a developer in my head, which is, in, it, it's an American-based one, so forgive me on this one, but it's basically, it's the enterprise.net developer working for the credit union in Toledo, Ohio. And if you don't, all those things combined <laughs> basically mean that there's zero people in the world that care about that developer. No one is thinking about that developer. I want that developer to go to work every day and have a magical experience. But most of the software that's built for them is basically thinking of them as some sort of unit economic machine. And that's not a life to live for them. And I, I want to give them something different. So are you talking to them then? or? Yeah, we, we have quite a few of those people as um, personas that we go and talk to. I think you see a lot of, of data also flowing through your platform. And um, I think that's also interesting for, for, for my audience. Um, do you think um, that the better developer always wins? Better developer the always wins? And, and the better software, yeah. Do you, no, do I don't think, I, I definitely don't think better, better software wins um, all the time. In fact, I, I think... Better distribution, if you're selling software, wins way more than better software. If you have a better sales team, if you're if you're tops down selling, um, you likely will win over a better product. Um, and I think that's an unfortunate reality of our last 20 years. But I also think that's why bottom up adoption has taken off because that typically is the better software will win. Um, but I also don't think that that is universally true. Um, Because I think that uh, sometimes you get subpar software being adopted for various reasons. Um, let, me, let me give one, a couple of good examples of this, I think. Um, I think Kubernetes has unlocked a lot of things in the world. I think it really has. I think it's, it's, it's manifests a lot of positive in the world, but I don't think it is great DX for developers. And I think that no one's going to really complain to me about this. They're going to talk about the value it's created. Undeniable. It's done, it's done a great job in the world. But in the end, it is not better software than a lot of other things that existed at the time. Um, and I think missteps from better software or challenges or other things caused you know, Kubernetes to have a wedge and it got in and, and did its thing. But that doesn't mean that it can't be great software too. I'm just saying, I think even great software does not 
always win out. Um, and I think this is something that developers, uh, honestly, open source developers haven't fully embraced and, and, and startup companies haven't fully embraced either, which is there are other things that you need to do to get your software in the hands of developers or in, in, in customers besides just build, building great, um, great piece of software. So you help companies to optimize on, on, on developer experience then, right? Um, my personal background is developer experience and go-to-market. So I build developer platforms. I understand developers. I understand how to get stuff adopted. That's what I do. Um, and from a product perspective, obviously, like, you know, GitHub and Roku look a certain way. If you take developers, platforms, and public clouds and smash them together. That's my, my developer depth. When I'm talking to startup companies quite a bit, I always say that there's two things you have to fully understand is that at the end of the day, someone has to want to use your software. They have to have this aha moment about it's going to solve my problem. It's going to get me what I need to do. It's going to make me a better X, Y, or Z or help me do um, A, B, and C better. And that is not exclusively about the product. It's also, there's other emotions that go into it. So it's about positioning. It's about wording. It's about um, how things are going to be um, adopted. Like, it, is it too frictionful? Do you have to add it? Do you have to put a, an email address into the website to go get this? Can you go download it from GitHub? Is it in NPM? Can you do certain things? There's a whole lot of decisions that go into it other than just building the piece of software. And um, some people know this intrinsically and some people assume in the um, field of dreams way, if we build it, they will come. And that's not always true. And what are your thoughts in developer productivity in general? Um, is it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not an, it's not an easy topic, right? Uh, but, but it is have... not. Uh, so I have, I have a lot of thoughts on this one. I think in general, they fall into um, a couple of different camps, but I will say this is that I do believe in a, that you can, I do believe this. I believe that at a meta level, as an organizational level, you should start tracking things and kind of understanding how the organization is doing. The problem is that just like with certain types of tools in the world, like OKRs, OKRs at a corporate level, I'm fine with. OKRs at a division level, sure. OKRs at an individual engineering level, God, no. That is that is terrible. Don't do that. So, you know, productivity tracking tools at an organization level, great. Uh, at a division level, yep. At a team level, yep. I, I, I can buy into that at an individual developer level. No, I don't. I don't think that we fully understand that well enough. And I think, unfortunately, if we go down that path right now there, that we will have inverted incentives and it will just cause all manner of bad things to happen. I think that there are a couple of people thinking about it from that perspective. And I uh, encourage people to think about developer productivity. But if you look at it this way from the top down, you'll end up in a bad spot. But if you start with the developer first, you're going to build a very different developer productivity tool if you think about the developer first. And most people are not. They're thinking about the organization, including someone like me. I'm thinking about mean time to recovery or cycle time or number of deploys. And those are good metrics from an organization and from a team level type of stuff because they, 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 they show a certain set of things and they tell you a lot about the efficiency and operations of your company. And not because those things are actually that meaningful in the first place, but they tell you if you could do 200 deploys a day, it tells you that you've taken the time to build the necessary subsystems to allow you to do 200 deploys a day. And if you can only do one deploy every two weeks, well, that tells you a lot about your organization as well and tells you where you need to go look. But if I look, then I take that cycle time or mean time to recovery and I apply it to an individual developer. That's a misapplied um, 
uh, it's misapplied. It doesn't tell me anything about the developer. Or in fact, it probably does, it tells me a lot less and a negative signal about somebody than um, I want to know. So I think that we have to approach developer productivity and organizational productivity from two different lenses. And I think that we're applying organizational productivity lens to developers, when in fact, I think that we should think about them as two distinct entities. And looking at, at for example, velocity or deployments per day from an organization perspective makes sense because like also for the individual developer, because it just um, makes you think about context switching, right? Um, I mean, I, like when a deployment takes, I don't know, half yeah. a day and a developer has to, I don't know, um, do a few calls or switch to another project while, while the deployment is running, it, it's just bad, right? What organizational um, productivity usually tells me is where my developers are seeing friction. And so basically I think of this as uh, where they're going to have a bad experience with our own internal software and sort of context switching or all that sort of stuff. Um, and so that's how I think about it, which is basically I want my, I want my developers to have as little friction as possible. I want them to have all the information they need to make decisions in the moment to know why they're building it, to be able to go be as creative as they possibly can be, and then not have to be the XKCD comment where you have people on chairs in a sword fight going down the hall because everything's compiling and deploying. You want stuff like that to happen automatically. And this, this actually goes back to, you know, manifest destiny with GitHub in some ways and building some of these things out, you know, again, GitHub, we can build some of those things. We can build better systems to allow certain friction to, to, to fall to the wayside. And if you look at individuals, um, does it make sense to build something that, um, I don't know, um, has gamification aspects that uh, motivates each of the developers or? I, I do, but I think it has to be approached from a different angle. So I think about this as like, go, go back to the OKRs. Um, I think instead of knowing if I achieved my OKR, or set out and achieved my OKR, because I could gain that any, any which way. I want to understand when I, when I go to my one-on-ones and I'm talking to some, uh, my direct report or a couple skip levels, or even an, an individual engineer, I'm usually asking them, what obstacles can I remove? Like what, where friction are you hitting? What is making your day bad? What could make it better? Um, how could you be faster? And, you know, I'm asking questions along those lines. And so if I only went in and said, hey, you only are doing two PRs a day, and I don't know, I'm just made that, that stat up. I'm actually not going in inquisitive. I'm going in almost accusatory. Instead, I'm going to, I want to go in inquisitive. And so I, if I were to do a developer productivity tool, I almost want to understand from their perspective, uh, what's their self rating? I'm making all this up on the spot. I've not thought deeply about developer productivity for its report. But hey, I'm rating myself today as a seven out of 10. And for me to go from seven to 10, it, we need to fix our build system because all the flaky tests are terrible and our deployment is blocked for whatever reason on this. And that just made me completely, you know, go, go from a 10 to a seven today. Um, so, and I could see that. That would be great information for me to have. So that is typically also the output that you get from, from a retrospective um, these days, right? Um, that you have like those things that need to be fixed in an organization and those, those you, you levels can. of friction. Yeah. yeah, I think what happens though is that most people um, find value and benefit out of those when um, organizations are, are smaller. But I can't go survey a thousand developers. I can't have a thousand developers in a retrospective. What I need is I need to see the themes emerge from a thousand developers. So if I thought, if I had a thousand developers that came in and said, our builds are bad. 
like they take too long. Well, the theme just emerged. I could hear it twice in a retrospective and have that same signal go off, but it's also much more intense for me when I have, you know, 75 developers over two weeks tell me that our builds have, have completely regressed. So you would rather send them like a structured survey uh, where they can put in everything that adds friction to their day? I think I would, um, the way that I, I typically run organizations, I typically have what I will call canaries in the organizations who I have a very good relationship with. And we go back and forth on topics um, all the time. And I look for signal and themes and emerge from that. But I need to verify those with other signal. And I think that having a survey from all the developers, yes. And so I've run those in the past. I've done survey type things where on a regular basis, people tell me what is causing them angst in the organization, whether it be engineering ladder is not appropriate or, you know, uh, what we're doing for opening an entity in a different country if they wanted to, they had a friend they want to hire or something like that. But I really care about the internal build systems typically and um, that you get information, different information from that. And most people love to complain about the internal build systems. So you can get some really good information from that. Coming from that to, to, to autonomy and empowerment. So what, what do you think is the right level of autonomy in, in a modern developer organization? I, um, I actually give a talk on this for um, venture-backed companies, which is, I call it building teams that scale. And it, the, the concept is all about how to scale from two people in a garage with a dog to 5,000 people over time. And, you know, different things break at different scales, which is, we all know that intrinsically, but you just don't know what until you've experienced it a couple of times. Um, autonomy is one of those topics, which is there is a degree of autonomy you can have as two people or five people or 10 people that is different than the degree of autonomy you can have at a thousand people. Um, and that typical difference is that you no longer have certain liberties. Like at one point, if there's five developers in the company, one of those five developers owns the website as well. One of those five developers owns marketing collateral in all likelihood. Maybe it's the CEO or the CTO or something like that. But there's a certain degree of decisions that they, they just all fully own. And as companies grow, they no longer are able to own those. There's, there's experts or divisions that have that sort of um, say. But on the day-in, day-out basis, what I, I tell, um, what I like to think about is I, I break, break down um, corporate structures into a couple different things, which is mission, vision, goals, priorities, and tasks. And if you think about this at the corporate level, you need to, to, to lay out the mission and vision. That is not something that any random person autonomously can go and just change. Mission and vision are set. Um, that's CEO or executives. You get the idea. Mission, vision, priorities. Now, priorities are some time box thing. Over this time period, we're going to go after these sets of things. Goals. So priorities and goals are where autonomy starts to come in. Usually executives will set up the goal, the priorities. And then they trickle down because they have differing effect on the other organizations. So if I say the priority is to go after enterprises in this way over this next 12-month time period, the infrastructure team is going to react to that by saying, we're not set up for X, Y, and Z, and we need to go build that. You can see that that level of autonomy comes in. I, as a CTO of an organization, likely do not understand fully what they're about to have to go undertake. And we need to have that conversation, but that's on them to go figure out based on those priorities that translate into goals. And so um, you can't see this because we're on an audio podcast, but I basically say that organizations are not tops down and they're not bottoms up. Both of those are, are typically wrong. Your organization needs to look like a diamond from a decision-making perspective. 
And that diamond is at the top or the executives or inverted if you want to, and don't care, it's a metaphor. But, you know, a minor set of major decisions are made by executives. They should not make a thousand decisions a year. They should make five, six, a dozen major decisions, company altering or company directional decisions. And an individual developer is, again, from a a decision-making autonomy perspective, not making large company changing decisions. They're making a set of decisions. But this middle rung, which is basically engineer to director level, they're making the bulk of all decisions in the company and they need to be appropriately informed so that mission, vision, priorities, um, goals, and tasks need to be aligned that way. So it's a very long-winded answer, but what I'm really saying is that you can't say it's a fully autonomous organization or not autonomous. I don't think bottoms up works at all at scale, and I don't think tops down works at all at scale. I think that you have to have a different type of structure and different type of communication strategy. Okay, so Ned didn't define that uh, you should use XML instead of JSON for configuring GitHub Actions, right? <laughs> no. And, and in fact, like even when we were doing GitHub Actions, which is you know the project that I was closest to for the first two years of, of GitHub, I made two to 10 major decisions on that. And the hundreds of thousands of minor decisions were not mine. And I didn't even know about them um, until some of them showed up. And maybe I questioned one or two of them, like, hmm, that doesn't sit right. Let's explore. It. And then, yes, you were right. I was wrong. I just didn't feel what you were feeling at the same time. Or no, you know what? Let's let's revert this one and go back to something different. Okay. Very, very good stuff so far. So um, like some some concrete takeaways maybe for, for the CTOs out, where, out there. Um, so what what are the, the, the three hottest takeaways that you would send out or shout out to every fellow CTO out there. Um, so what did, did recently like totally boost your life? Is there anything? Um, interesting question. Interesting question. I would say that um, um, I had a thread a little while back on Twitter, which I think applies to CTOs, um, any executive inside uh, organizations in general. But I said literal superpowers and startups are, you know, SQL and Excel. And, you know, I think both of those are obviously amazing skills. But I think priority setting, concise writing, and storytelling are superpowers that any leader inside organization should have. And what I mean by that is you should be able to concisely say what you're going to go do. Um, you should be able to tell a story about it, and you should be able to set the priorities. And I will tell you that I've been doing this for a while at this point. And I, I think most organizations break down in communication. Like they just That's why organizations don't go from 10 to whatever, and they don't scale. They break down in communication um, and priorities. People do not like to set priorities. They don't want to make the hard call. And I think it's one of the harder things to do at scale because everyone, particularly executives, they want, they want to say, there's a thousand people in this organization. Why can't I get all this stuff done? And that is a, that is a really bad spot for a singular engineer to be because at the end of the day, all of a sudden they're being asked to work on three different context switch projects over the course of two weeks. And it is the executive's lack of understanding of why they can't get that done. And honestly, it's on the executive because the executives have to set up the structure that allows priorities to trickle and all that stuff to get done in a certain set of ways. Um, so I would say understand how to communicate, understand how to set priorities and understand how to um, get feedback. Um, if I could change one thing for myself, um, going back 20 years or so, I would say invest more 
in how you communicate to the organization and how you get feedback, like project status from the organization. And had I done that 10, 15 years earlier, I would be monumentally better than I am today. You, you just killed my closing question. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but isn't it uh, like in every company that I've seen so far, if you would have asked people what is wrong, that it would have been communication, right? Uh, communicate. So um, I, I I've been pretty open that I've, I have a very low opinion about overall leadership in the tech industry. I just think it's it's average at best, below average. If I was being really honest, and I think it's because most people know a specific skill. They know how to run a sales organization or how to sell. More likely, they know um, you know most CTOs know the technical depth, but they don't know how to run the organization. And I think communication is 90% of the game when you get to a certain level. And it's, it's rather amusing to me that um, we are still having this conversation because I think we've been having this communication conversation for at least as long as I've been paying attention to tech. Um, but I also think that the opinion has changed a little bit and, they, and people have realized a good example of this. When I started IBM as that high school co-op, and then when I graduated from college, I took that job at IBM. And I remember getting my first paycheck and I look at this little cost center thing and I'm like, I don't know anything about corporate governance. I don't know how to run a company, whatever. So I'm asking questions and I said, oh, your cost center, whatever. Um, I'm like, okay, so what does that mean? It means that IBM doesn't view you as value add. It views you as debt, essentially. Like you are an engineer. You don't bring money into the house. Right? Like, well, that's a really interesting way to think about the people who build the product. That doesn't seem strange. Well, that was the late 90s, early 2000s. And there's no way that if you walked into Stripe today and said, hey, where's the cost center? They're going to point to the engineering department. My, my God, that's like that entire thought process has changed. But we still have not sorted out communication. We have still, we're, we're still promoting the best engineers to leadership positions, not the ones who can organize and get the most out of all the engineers. We're still promoting the most technical engineers. Um, We're still saying that is the best salesperson. They should run the sales organization. Like, my God, that is the, the worst possible way to find the people who should run organizations. Um, I'm a big sports nut. I don't think you want to make sure. I don't think you want to say Michael Jordan, just because he's the best player of all time, should automatically be the coach of the team. They're completely different skill sets. In fact, Michael Jordan probably doesn't understand it all how to motivate, coach, or anything, because certain things in life just came naturally to him from his physical gifted perspective or his own mentality. But there's a set of people that have to really motivate and really understand the game differently to become to become competent players who likely can translate to coaches. Michael Jordan is pretty much of a nerd, I guess, right? I mean, he made it to the to the top 1% or even less. <laughs> so yeah. Um, and, and he's actually, he's a good, he's a good example of this. Michael Jordan is either one or number one or number two player of all time, depending on how you rank him and LeBron. Um, and he's also an owner of a team and he is considered probably the worst owner in the NBA. And if you think about that, like, well, that we do that all the time. We do that all the time in tech and it's whether or not we make, somebody a manager when they shouldn't be or a leader when they shouldn't be or honestly fund people who shouldn't be funded from a VC perspective too. But but I think the good thing about about tech is then that typically the 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 best developers 
also know that they are the best developers or realize whenever they try management that they are the best developers and have no time for management and then uh, they end up I, being the best developers, right? I think they might, but I think organizations sometimes do not. So that is where I think the breakdown is. So it's interesting because I, um, um, at <laughs> Canonical, Heroku, and GitHub, I had to undo the same thing three times. At Canonical, it was a flat structure. And so they said, we need managers. Therefore, the most technical person on the team becomes the manager. Heroku did the same thing. GitHub did the same thing. They were all flat structures that eventually got some management layers. Canonical, it went so poorly that the managers themselves who were the developers with the self-awareness basically said, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm doing this so poorly. I myself am not satisfied with this. I'm going to be stepping down. Then the wave of Basically, well, I want to say professional managers came in. And there was also another, that was also its own mini disaster because you don't want professional managers. You don't want people who don't understand development. What you want is you want developers, ex-developers or developers, like I, I call myself an ex-developer at this point, who are basically their their systems thinkers. So instead of being the in-the-moment code person, they're the architect-ish type of person. They understand the system. And there's a, we Every company, every project, everything in the world has them. We just we see them doing different types of work. They're the ones who are running the standups, or they're the ones who are organizing. Hey, let's get everyone together. We seem to be misaligned. All the open source projects have them. We, they're the ones who are making basically doing. They're, they're essentially release managers at this point. Um, but for whatever reason, we still want to make sure that the best athlete becomes the coach or the manager, and that's just not the way that works. So developers themselves have self-awareness. I think it's usually the organizations that don't. And they say, we're just going to make you the manager because we need someone in the moment. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Good, good, good answer so far. So still knowing that you're an ex-developer, is there anything you're totally nuts about and takes you totally, you totally love these days? Uh, any, any tool or any, Anything you discovered, you, you you totally anything technical you discovered, you 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 annoy all your friends with anything anything special. Um, I'm kind of this. Uh, I'm also obsessed with workflows like command line automation and all that sort of stuff. And I am trying to. So I'm on a Mac. Um, I don't use Linux anymore as my daily driver. And I'm trying to figure out how to get back on a Mac to where I had certain automations on Linux. So I've been experimenting with Alfred or Raycast or other types of things where I can basically automate a whole bunch of stuff. And I wouldn't say I'm annoying my friends with them yet, but there'll become a point in time when I basically have the system set up to the point where I've got all these keyboard shortcuts and I've got all these um, autocompletes and I've got all this like stuff happening that I'm just going to, I'll probably annoy my friends. Okay. <laughs> and, and besides SQL and so on, right? Um, I, I am spending a lot of time too thinking about, um, I do like um, um, puzzles, like, like overall like market puzzles as well. So from, not from a tech perspective, uh, specifically like code, um, but I am spending a lot of time thinking about um, data. So it's like data itself in the world, how you manifest data, how it moves, how it, it changes and manipulates. And um, I think that, you know, over the last 20 years from a company perspective, we've seen Oracle basically die. Um, the rise of the open source projects. We've seen a lot of um, things happen there, Postgres and MySQL and other things. But we're also seeing a subtle shift that's happening now in, in tooling that's happening. We're seeing a lot of good open source stuff pop up, but we're also seeing things that are now becoming companies, like with the emergence of Materialized and DBT and Timescale and Census and a couple of other things. There's a lot of stuff that's happening on the movement of data 
And I'm trying to make sense heads or tails of it. It's, you know, it doesn't just live in a database anymore. It lives in a lot of different areas. I think Ned just uh, invested in an ETL tool, right? Um, is that is that true? I, I that I probably is true. Between Ned <laughs> and I, we we tend to invest in a ton of different companies. So, Re really looking forward to see what what uh, GitHub comes comes up with next. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure it will be amazing, and it was great fun talking to you. And I hope we can probably do it again whenever the secrets are revealed. <laughs> it if you don't want to reveal one now. <laughs> so. Well, I actually don't think it's that much of a secret. I think we've been pretty open about what we're building. If you think about um, code spaces and you think it just even think that what I just mentioned before with what actions is supposed to do from a workflow perspective. And if you think about CI as a vertical on the workflows and security as an underpinning of the workflows, we bought SEML. Well, then we already talked about what might come next in the production land. It's not that big a secret, I think. It's just now in us to execute it and make it so that It looks and feels great. Yeah. You mentioned you like puzzles, so that uh, pretty much reflects that, right? <laughs> so uh, thanks a lot, Jason. Uh, it was great fun talking to you. And um, yeah, I hope we can catch up on that um, in, in, a, in a year maybe. And uh, <laughs> hope we can travel again. Then I'll, I'll visit you over there. And um, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thanks again to our sponsors, Fastly and the About You Cloud. If you want to know more about Fastly services, simply visit fastly.com slash alphalist. If you want to get in touch with About You and hear more about the About You Cloud, simply write to hello at aboutyou.com. Thanks a lot.